Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, Prepared Canada CEO Alex Vesna says we should avoid simplistic slogans and stick to the facts when we talk about important issues like gun control. Video tax news editor Hugh Nielsen looks at the first of many cases involving COVID relief money being given to, well, fraudsters. And Dr. Andrea Wallace from the BCSPCA has some tips for bird feeder owners to help stop the spread of avian flu. So, let's get started. Alex Vesna is back with us today. Mr. Vesna is the CEO of Prepared Canada Corporation and also teaches disaster and emergency management at York University in Toronto. And he's back with us today uh, because he wrote a piece uh, in the Post Media Paper Group a couple of days ago entitled Debate Over Gun Control, fueled by simplistic slogans and says society can only function if it has an intelligent understanding of risk versus reward. Alex Vesna, good morning, sir. Welcome back to the show. Great to have you. Great to be back. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you, Alex. Uh, I, I'm looking at the at the article you wrote, and this is the the gun control uh, business that the Liberals have been talking about since they were elected in 2015. Uh, various remedies have been proposed, the latest of which is banning handguns. And you took this straight on uh, in your article in, in the Sun newspapers a few days ago, using that as an example of what you call a complex issue, which is frequently reduced to slogans and emotional arguments, Alex, or obfuscated by the misleading use of, t- of statistics. And you use a line that everyone would recognize. Here it comes. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. And you say, technically, this is, well, kind of true. Take it from there, please. Yeah, so um, one thing that I noticed around this issue was that both sides, th- there are more than two sides in this, but there's two larger uh, camps in this debate. Of um, uh, of either uh, people should ha- have a right to um, have a firearm for any number of uses, or uh, uh, you know ban it because a few people will be saved, or any or a large number of people are saved, or people will be saved. Those are the two big camps. Sure. I noticed that both camps um, actually use a lot of disingenuous arguments. Not all, not all the people, but the, a lot of the common slogans you hear. And um, the one that I heard come up quite a bit um, was "guns don't kill people, people kill people." Yeah. From the uh, from the pro gun group. And that was a that was a bit disingenuous. Um, it, you know, if you applied that same argument to, I believe the example used in the article was anthrax, mm-hmm. then you know it, it tends to tends to fall on its face. Um, so a lot of these slogans are used, and they're not really thought out. And I think that um, they resonate with a lot of people uh, because to to a lot of people, the the idea that, for example, from a uh, from a from a legal gun owner's perspective. Um, they they would they they hear the argument that their uh, that guns should be banned and that um, the their property should be taken away, um, and they don't see the numbers for it and there's an emotional reaction of that doesn't feel right. On the other side, you uh, have someone um, hear that guns shouldn't be bad and banned and maybe their child was shot and killed last week yeah. and they go well that, that that's not right and there's just an immediate reaction. So the slogans. Um, do catch on, and you can see where they come from. Uh, well, and, 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 they, they both, 
There's a, yeah. there's a part, sorry to interrupt, Alex, but a lot of this material isn't even original. It's borrowed. I mean, this guns uh, don't yeah. kill people. People kill. That's the National Rifle Association in the United States. That's their line. Uh, this argument that politicians and interest groups on both sides of the issue in this country are using borrowed lines and, and material from the United States that rarely applies equally in Canada. Well, I mean, borrow, borrow doesn't mean wrong. To be fair, I mean, Canada does like to do things second in general. Mm-hmm. Um, we, do, we do like to have someone else spend a lot of the cost in R&D, and then once we know it's a good idea, do it. So, I mean, borrowed isn't necessarily bad. Okay. But, but just to be fair. But, um, but, uh, but, 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 yeah, I mean, you have to apply things to the appropriate context, and there, it is slightly different between the Canada. And, uh, things are different between the Canada and the United States. Um, but uh, Canada is actually one of the most gun-friendly countries in the world, relatively speaking, in the uh, of the uh, of the Western world, um, because a lot of other countries you just can't have a gun at all. Right. Uh, just, just so we are a bit closer to the United States than some other countries, to be honest. But, but either way, the the major point of the piece uh, was to just have people take a serious look at this and understand what the actual arguments you should be making are. Um, and I, I, I believe you mentioned. Um, the general police perspective on this in Canada, where um, the effect of uh, of, of criminal of um, banning handguns would be minimal, exactly. In, in general, general belief, um, and I think that that's an interesting conversation because you c- you could actually make an argument on either side as to whether or not you would want to ban handguns, even if only one or two people um, would be saved as a consequence. But you'd have to be having that debate honestly. And this is the other one that I brought up next, because the, another slogan is used on, on the other side of this issue uh, of, uh, well, if, if one life is, is saved, it's worth it. Sure. If that's true, um, then you have to consider banning all contact sports because more than one person dies from a concussion. Mm-hmm. You have to conser- consider um, banning um, being uh, fishing as a job because of how many people die annually um, in, in highly risky occupations. Uh, you need to have a serious look at you know what the cost is of saving lives, um, and if it's worth it. Um, because on the other side, you know, you might have the other debate of maybe we want to have uh, fishing because we like eating fish, and maybe having a few people die of that is is an acceptable cost to society. Um, what is the benefit of having people own handguns, and is it worth one, two lives, etc.? So, you, like, you can have that debate, but the point is, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not 150 people. That's right. You have to know what the number is and then have that conversation honestly and go, okay, well, this is what we're talking about. Is this a precedent we want to set? Is what is this what Canadians are okay with? And if we we can go on either side of the issue, but we have to have the right conversation, though. Uh, you know, to a couple of points here, Alex. Uh, first and foremost, there is no law enforcement person in this country who wouldn't quickly tell you that most of the bad guys' guns come from America and they get smuggled up here. And a gun ban, a handgun ban of any description will have a zero impact on the bad guys who ignore all the laws on a good day anyway. So it's it's a, a complete waste of time, again, from a law enforcement perspective. And you make a distinction in your article, and I'd like you to elaborate on it, please, between gun control and banning handguns. They are not the same thing. Yeah, so one is uh, a general uh, category for things you can do, and the other is the specific thing that you're doing. It's like the difference between uh, pick pick your favorite movie. Just pick one. What, what, what's your favorite? Movie? Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. So it's like the difference between movies and Gone with the Wind. 
um, you know, gun control is movies, and uh, banning handguns is gone with the wind. Mm-hmm. So one's a category, another's a, a specific thing that you're doing. And very often the arguments are conflated where um, people, will use an, uh, people will use a gun control argument to justify banning handguns, or the reverse. Um, and there's issues with that, because many people may fully agree with uh, the idea of some form of gun control, but they may not agree with the specific method that's done. Same thing uh, with, uh, with um, um, punishments. So many people may, uh, when someone is charged and convicted with something, many people may agree that uh, someone should be convicted. People might not agree with a particular sentencing. So just because you agree with the idea of something doesn't mean that you agree with the specific way that something is implemented. Of course, and there was that uh, time during the conservative, the Harper years, when if you were convicted of a crime involving a gun, there was a mandatory minimum sentence that automatically applied. That's since been removed, but that is a that was one of the, the items you talked about right so that that is an example so you um so some people may agree that people uh and there's there's sides on both sides of the issue on this for uh, again but uh you may have people that uh, people i think would generally agree that there should be some penalty for um for for gun offenses sure but you'll have some people that would agree that that would want a mandatory minimum some people that wouldn't but trying to apply the arguments for we should have any sentencing to prove in the other is uh I, I, I like using this when I have the opportunity because it sounds nice. Intellectually disingenuous. Um, it's, it, it, it's, it's, you're making a dishonest argument, but you're not really... Um, it might be not obvious to people that you're making a dishonest argument unless they're paying uh, very close attention. And a lot of people are so busy in their day, they're not paying very close attention to an argument. So you tend to get away with it when you make it. Uh, not you, but people. Yeah. Uh, people tend to get away with... Uh, intellectually disingenuous arguments when they make them. Uh, so it's just, I, I don't, I, you know, I, it's, it's acting against people's interest when making them think that you're acting in their interest. And it's just, it's one of those, you know, come on, you know better. Come on, uh, man. People do it, you know, like, come on, you know better. You know, <laughs> I, the people who make these arguments, they know what they're doing. Like, That's right. On. Society can only function if it has an intelligent understanding of risk versus reward. Making changes to public policy, especially involving issues of public safety, should be done carefully. There's lots more in the column written by our guest, Alex Vesna, in the Sun Newspaper Group. Always a pleasure, sir. Thanks for joining us, Alex. It's great to have you again. Great, great to be here. Thanks for having me. We learned uh, in the paper this week, the National Post to be precise, that just under a half a million dollars in COVID emergency rent subsidies was given to a numbered company in Toronto, despite no records or filings ever from that company. According to the folks at the accounting information website Video Tax News, this case is just the first of many as the CRA now faces the task of recouping money from illegitimate COVID-19 claims from programs designed to get the money out the door quickly. Here to talk more about it from Video Tax News is its editor, Hugh Nielsen, joining us on the line this morning from Edmonton. Hugh, thank you for joining us and good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Uh, it's a, it is a pretty scary case. I think you got to put those numbers in context. Uh, CRA has stats on this, just the rental subsidy program alone, and we know there were a lot of subsidy sure. programs over a two-year period. Yeah. billion on uh, over 2.1 million individual applications, 220,000 businesses and other organizations. So that, I know when I looked at the article initially, 
wow, that's a big number. But if you think about this being, there were six applications, really. It wasn't one single payment of almost half a million. It would have been six claims of somewhere in the uh, the 60,000, well, 80 on average. One of them probably was over 100,000 because the percentages you could get were scaling. But I don't think it was that easy for CRA to see this. Right. They don't get stats on my rent. Mm-hmm. So again, one I recall dealing with this in the beginning when we knew when the government recognized what an emergency was uh, was upon us, and uh, how they all of a sudden, having locked up thirty seven million people, suddenly needed to start subsidizing those folks in a big hurry, and let's get the money out there. And one of the original directives from the prime minister's office was ignore obvious red flags and at the time i recall on the radio hugh saying my mm-hmm. gosh they're just asking for trouble this means pay the ripoff artists we'll deal with it later i suspect we're we're now at the later point in the process well this, this actually seems like an unusual case this clearly was pure fraud there's no honest error when you make six claims for four properties and when the cra follows up and calls the landlords None of them have ever heard of you. Right. And I know I have read the case. Scotiabank picked up on this because, oh, you guys opened an account three weeks ago. It's had no transactions, and suddenly you're depositing six checks for almost half a million bucks from the government? Right. Bogus checks was their concern. But I, I think it's also important, as you said, to remember the context here. And if you think back uh, two years ago, these programs were going to last, this one didn't even exist. These programs were only going to last, oh, they're going to be 12 weeks. No, wait, 16 weeks. Oh, it's not going away. Spread, stretch it out again to 28 weeks. That's right. We're now on over two years. These programs, I, I checked, uh, oddly enough, your, your timing's very ironic. Today is the last day of the last period of the rent program. Ah, so it is an interesting time to have this conversation, so, isn't it? Yeah, it's just winding down, and... I think that's been part of CRA's challenge, was the theory early on was, okay, in 12 or 16 weeks, this will be done, and then we can repurpose all the resources that are going to processing claims, or at least a good chunk of them, back to their normal jobs and back to reviewing these claims. Right. So and then how- it kept dragging on. Indeed. I think the phrase I hear a lot is, we're all sprinting the marathon. And CRA, no uh, less than the rest of us, trying to keep up with all of this. Uh, so, and, and in terms of the tip of the iceberg that this particular story represented in terms of a fraudulent, a clearly fraudulent situation, Hugh, um, how much, how much, how deep does the iceberg go? In other words, is this, is this going to become a full-time job for a department of the CRA attempting to chase down fraudulent claims and recoup some of the money? I'm, I'm going to guess the fraudulent claims are, there's going to be some out there. There's 220,000 plus unique entities that made claims obviously some of them weren't legit right i think a lot of them were legit and what we're going to start hearing i i predict in the fall and the winter is the legitimate claims being scrutinized as well and, and i think that to me would have been part of cra's challenge picking these up up front it's great to say well you know if you'd asked these guys to provide their lease you immediately would have known yeah but i would have had to ask all the restaurants all the borrowers. sure all commercial property operators, all the mall renters, they would have had to get asked too. And maybe you could have picked a de minimis test, but 141,000 of these claims were over 10,000 bucks. Mm-hmm. 
But the so are you going to ask every one of them? A fair point, too. The original directive, Hugh, I think, and I recall it vividly, was ignore obvious red flags. That was part of the original package. Was that, and I appreciate the need for haste and, and, and the, the emergence, it, it, at, the point, at the time, it was a true national emergency. Nonetheless, could they have been a little more judicious in dealing out the dough? Well, I don't like the phrase ignore obvious red flags, and it is the real phrase. So like you, that that makes me a little nervous. I think the context of that, uh, when I saw it reported, was in the personal individual payment program. Okay. And the dollars weren't as substantial there. I know that CRA has followed up on uh, on some claimants for the rent subsidy. I haven't heard as much. The wage subsidies, they're a lot easier for them to spot red flags because if my employer is claiming wage subsidies. Here, he can go back and look and go, well, you know, when Sterling got his paycheck, you took tax off of that. How come you're not remitting it? Right. How do you have wages but not have these payments? They don't see my rent. So I think the rental one would have been the harder one for them to vet. And what do you hold and, out as a possibility for percentage of recovery? I, I sound a little jaundiced here, I know, Hugh, but uh, well, a, yeah, lot, that, a lot that of that's just easy. written off. So how much of it do you suspect will ever recoup? Well, and, and this case strikes me as really unusual in that regard because the bank picked up on the fact that these look a little suspect. We're just going to freeze that account, thank you very much. Right. And that money will obviously be recovered. But i got to figure if you're a scammer, you pull the money out and get out as fast as possible. So the only reason they're able to recover these funds is because the bank wouldn't let him take them out. But they're large sums. They had to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. Well, we all knew this was coming, didn't we? I mean, you, there's been this sort of sinking sensation that there would be a period of reckoning. And it appears that uh, we're at the, in that phase at this point. How long do you think it's going to go on? Well, when when we started this merry road, expecting that this was going to be maybe half a year at most, I think we figured we'd have been through a lot of it by now. For sure. I'm amazed how fast Siri was able to move on this one, really. They got the applications in December, sent the checks out December 29. They were deposited in January, and by April they had it in court. Oh. In fairness, what they had in court was a very unusual situation. Normally... If you and I disagree, if CRA and I disagree as to what my tax should have been, I have appeal rights. And until those are exhausted, they're not allowed to go collect the tax. Right. Here, they took advantage of a provision in the legislation that says, yeah, that's for normal situations. If delay would jeopardize the ability to collect money owing to Canadians, and let's be real, this is our money that's getting spent, Mm -hmm. then we can issue what they call a jeopardy order and say, you pay now, and if somehow you prove your case, then you'll get it back. And in this instance, the court looked at the facts and said, yeah, you got nothing backing this up. There's no way we're letting you take that 480000 bucks and disappear. Yeah. Well, it's good they got somebody, Hugh, and, and one can only hope that they get more as uh, all of this unravels. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. We do appreciate your very calm uh, a look at, at, a, at a situation that a lot of us find considerably annoying. Thanks very much, Hugh. Thank you, Sterling. 
cases of avian flu spread across BC, the SPCA is urging people with backyard bird feeders to take them down temporarily to reduce the transmission of this highly contagious virus. The H5N1 strain has been detected in at least five flocks in our province, most recently in small flocks in Kelowna and in Richmond. Here to tell us more about all of this is Dr. Andrea Wallace, Manager of Wild Animal Welfare for the BCSPCA. Dr. Wallace, Andrea, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Thank you. It's good to have you back with us. It's been a while. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the avian flu and then we'll talk about how uh, important a move uh, taking bird feeders down is. What's going on out there these days with avian flu, Andrea? Yeah, so a highly pathogenic avian influenza has been spreading across or throughout uh, the U.S. and has been confirmed in Canada and is rapidly spreading across the country. And we've seen a few cases in B.C. And to help prevent the spread of this disease in bird populations, we're really um, asking people to avoid contact with wild birds and to always refrain from feeding or touching wild birds like ducks and geese Um, in parks and near bodies of water and things like that. And we're extending this recommendation to bird feeders as an extra precaution because bird feeders really facilitate the spread of disease by encouraging unnatural congregations of birds as well as attracting other wildlife, including uh, predatory birds and rodents, to one area. And that is just a hotspot for uh, the transmission of this disease. Okay, and as far as the avian flu itself goes, Andrea, this is, this is a spread from bird to bird. It, it, there's no uh, other way in which the disease is, is uh, spread, correct? Uh, well, a, a little bit. Um, so, so definitely the, the primary um, way that the disease is spread is from bird to bird, but it can also um, be spread by humans uh-huh. just by um, walking on um, feces that had from an infected bird and then and bringing that to a new area. So certainly if people have uh, backyard chickens or backyard flocks of chickens or turkeys, uh, you, they want to make sure they're taking extra precautions and making sure they're not bringing any contamination into their flock. Well, it's interesting that you would mention the, the backyard version because, of course, you go out to the Fraser Valley and other places around Metro Vancouver and this whole and, and we see where, of course, the great fear lies with avian flu. We've been there before, Andrea, and it's not a pretty sight if it happens again because you're talking now about farms with thousands and thousands of birds and so on. So we're trying to head all this off at the pass, basically, aren't we? Yeah, and and just this extra step of of temporarily removing bird feeders and bird baths um, to to help spread birds out, basically, and, and make sure that they're not coming together in huge congregations with the possibility of spreading the disease even further. Okay, I wanted to zoom in on a specific, if you don't mind. My next-door neighbor, Tony, has hummingbird feeders in his backyard, so we enjoy and are thrilled because there are always little hummers zooming around our place, and we just love them to pieces. Are hummingbird feeders the same as the uh, the, the bird seed feeders, or is that a different category? It, it is a different category. Um, hummingbird feeders are not without risk. Um, they, they do attract hummingbirds, of course, and hummingbirds are birds. And this um, avian influenza can infect all avian species. Okay. So 
what we're asking people to do is, is to remain vigilant and take really good care of that hummingbird feeder. Make sure you're, you're cleaning it, you're replacing the nectar often. Um, and if you do see any signs of sick birds, uh, to just take them down immediately. Uh, we don't want to spread uh, any fungal infections among hummingbirds. And, um, and so cleaning them regularly and, and making sure um, everything is, is, is clean and sanitary for those little birds is a very important thing to do. Okay, and you mentioned a moment ago, and I just wanted to follow up on it if you don't mind, you mentioned uh, keep your eyes open for sick birds. So mm-hmm. what, what, what would, I mean, we, uh, we we're fortunate, we, we, those of us who enjoy watching birds, to have so many. What would it, how would we recognize uh, um, uh, an unwell or a bird dealing with, with this malady? Yeah, so, so sick birds will appear lethargic. Um, they also might look unusually fluffed up, um, so a bit puffy. Um, they might also have nasal discharge, um, so like a runny nose, or have excessively watery eyes or, or swelling of the head and eyelids. So really they just they look sick. They right. look like they've got the flu. Right, and, and what does one do when confronted by an obviously sick bird? Do, 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 yeah. What is the human response? Should we gather this little creature up and take it to the local, local SPCA, or what's the drill, Andrea? Yeah, so, so anyone who finds a sick or dead wild bird is encouraged to contact the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative, and that number is one 800 Um, If the bird is is alive and there is a wildlife rehabilitation center nearby, uh, they can work with that wildlife rehabilitation center to get that bird into care. Uh, Unfortunately, it's it's, uh, usually by that time they're um, uh, too far gone Mm -hmm. if they're um, suffering from many of these uh, conditions. So, um, humane euthanasia is usually what it will be required, especially if they have avian influenza. Um, there is no treatment. Right. Well, it's important that we have this conversation. It's not the happiest conversation to have on a Saturday morning, but it's very, it's an important consideration given the possibility of the spread. And that's what we're all about not having happened this time around and having been there uh, a couple of times in recent years, Andrea, we know what the, the uh, extreme uh, downside of this looks like. And none of us want to go anywhere near that. So uh, vigilance is the key, isn't it? Absolutely. Can we ask you very quickly, in a, a minute or so we have left, to, to switch gears and talk to us a little bit about pandemic puppies? And I'm, I'm talking about pooches, not necessarily the little guys. People, droves of us went out when we went into isolation a couple of years ago and matched ourselves up with a furry friend. Some of us have now decided to return to the workplace, maybe not willingly. Nonetheless, we have to go back. Uh, and, and in some cases are finding having the dog simply, it, it, it's unmanageable now. Uh, is that a thing, Andrea, or are most people who adopted pandemic pets hanging on to them? Yeah, so that's a little bit out of my realm of, of expertise in my area. Um, but what I do know is, is that we're not seeing a, a large influx of, of pets being returned to Good. the SPCA, which is great news. Yeah. There are, of course, many other animals that, that are in our care that need either a foster home or um, a permanent uh, forever home. So if you are looking for a pet, I do encourage uh, you to, to uh, visit the SPCA website and find that forever pet for you. 
Oh, well, that's great stuff. And we knew that there would be some degree of return, but I'm, but I'm delighted to hear that it's not a matter of that it's, it's so prevalent. Everybody knows about it. And, and that's a good thing, don't you think? It is very much so. Thank you for this this morning, Andrea. This avian flu stuff is terribly important to understand. And the fact that we can contribute to uh, reducing its spread is also very important. We do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.